good. Thank you, Tess. Jingo? Yeah. So, Dominica, here are some, some more things about the perceived stability and the actual instability of a totalitarian regime. So there are several sources. The first is the, the political officer suppressing the professional people, uh, the people who are professionals for political correctness. That's a very, very important. The other thing is, usually for these totalitarian regimes, they're held together through intimidation. So we have an analogy. It's like a, you have a pressure cooker. You never release the, the steam inside, and you just keep heating it up. Eventually, it will explode, but you cannot predict when it will explode. So that's a second source. The third source of instability is that when you have the leadership change, it happens with the totalitarian regime too. There's no predictability. I could give you one example. For example, Hong Kong. Deng Xiaoping negotiated with the British that Hong Kong will keep its freedom unchanged 50 years after its return to China. Sounds very good. 1997, Hong Kong was returned to China the same year Deng Xiaoping died. So his successor came into power. A few successors down the way, you got Xi Jinping. That's 17 years after Deng Xiaoping died. Well, the promise was, or the agreement was, Hong Kong will keep its freedom unchecked until 15 years later. Xi Jinping came into power. He said, I'm not in charge. Why should I listen to a dead man? So he changed that. He took it back year over year. Eventually went into a major crackdown. So it's not even 20 years. Hong Kong is completely changed. So that kind of, you cannot predict when the next dictator will come into power. What does he like? Xi Jinping looks, looked very open-minded before he came into power, looked very timid. But when he came into power, people were like, wow, what a monster. So you cannot predict, predict these things. Then the last thing is, for in, in, in the modern society, you have a lot of new technology, new changes, and the society needs to evolve. In a totalitarian regime, they don't allow new institutions to come out to tackle these issues. Hence, your problem accumulates and it becomes very unmanageable. Then the last thing about foreign investment, yes, on the paper it looked huge, but you know, the two places account for a growing source for foreign investment in China. The first one is Hong Kong. The second one is Taiwan. It's very funny because Hong Taiwan is counted as a, as a foreign investment, but Communist China declared it has its sovereignty. So go figure. Now, I'm going to talk about Hong Kong. A lot of money going to Hong Kong actually came from China. It worked like this. The Communist China gave a tax rebate to foreign investments to attract foreign investment. So here's a lot of times it works like this. I'm a corrupt officer, official. I stole a $200 million. I gave it to my son who already emigrated to the United States. Then my son is going to put the money back into China to buy a company. It's actually money laundering. Now, all these are counted as foreign investments, both in and out. It, it, it looked huge, right? I've moved $200 million out and $200 million flow back in. In the total, it looked at like $400 million. But that's actually money laundering. That's actually accounting for a growing portion of the foreign investment. That's my point. Thank you, Jingo. Uh, Dominic uh, is connecting. But in the meanwhile, we can go to uh, Matthias. Yeah, thank you very much, Jim. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt uh, your discussion on autocracies in China uh, with stuff related to actions on the ground. I got a question uh, towards language in that regard. Um, language, uh, yesterday uh, afternoon and evening uh, Ukraine time, uh, we saw firm data of, um, of attacks or fights going on in the woods right to the west of Izium. Now, when I say woods, um, this is not like uh, the woods further in the east. It's, uh, there's roads going through this. Um, so I'm assuming um, that there are Russian forces there, even though it wasn't marked as forward operating areas of Russia 
uh, in a couple of labs, uh, particularly the Institute of uh, the Studies of War. Um, also, maybe related, maybe unrelated, and definitely unconfirmed, we saw information um, on Twitter and on Reddit uh, that the 81st Brigade of the Ukrainian Army received American howitzers on the front. Um, so my question is, uh, have we seen any continuation of the fights to the west of Izium? Uh, do we have any idea um, if these two uh, data points could be related in any sort? Um, yeah, and, and basically, do we have any further information if that is the point right now where uh, the Ukrainian army is trying to uh, flank the pincer uh, or the attempted pincer of the Russian army uh, itself of Izium? Um in summary, there was reports that Ukraine is conducting a counteroffensive to the west of Izium, more to the northwest. There was fighting um, along the river to the west of Izium, um, to the northwest, which name escapes me. I don't think that's the uh, Seversky Donetsk, where Ukraine forces destroyed a uh, Russian bridge that they had built, um, like a pontoon bridge. How many... Uh, NATO artillery systems are there. I, I certainly don't know. Um, but it appears that they have gotten resupplies, and that is an ongoing fight with the ultimate objective of pushing towards Izium supply lines and forcing the Izium troops that might otherwise be undergoing an offensive south towards other regions in the Donbass to focus more on their uh, back ends. Um, they haven't really had any effect, or I say the Russians haven't had any major effective pushes. There was the area to the northeast of Izium towards Oskil, where uh, U uh, Ukrainian units attacked. Russian units dropped a tremendous amount of armor on them, and the Ukrainian forces ran the risk of being encircled from the east, and as such, they pulled back. Um, but at least to the west, it seems that fighting is ongoing. Um, I, I don't have a tremendous amount more information on that. Um, uh, just unfortunately, I, I, it's an ongoing operation. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, but to summarize, so the strategy is, uh, just like they did, uh, north of Kiev, uh, they're trying to attack logistics, um, both from Kharkiv and now to the northwest of Izium, uh, and are just stymieing the, um, stymieing the pushes, um, the direct pushes of, of the Russian army. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I'm going to drop yeah. down. Thank you for the question. Yeah, if it worked once, it'll work again, right? And the Russian forces, I mean, they know when they're starting to get in circle and they're running out of supplies. And from what we've seen so far, when that starts to happen, they pull back because they're not ideologically motivated enough to stand there and fight to the death, right? Like, especially now. So you don't have to completely cut off an enemy supplies, right? If I take away 30% of your food, ammo, and fuel, you're going to feel the hit. And there's going to be further downstream effects of that. It's not a, you know, oh, if they have 10% of their ammo coming in and they'll just shoot less bullets. It, it doesn't work that way, right? And when you're fighting a superior number force or superior armored force or what have you, or you just want to be smart about it, you starve them out a little bit first. And that can take the frame of, you know, denying them access to their supplies. And there are a number of uh, nominally, or supposedly I should say, more capable Russian units in that area to the northwest of Izium. There's a gentleman on here talking about how one of them had a storied history in Moscow and they were there um, during the 1991 attempted coup and they had suppressed things and they're supposed to be one of the best of the best. It was like the, the second guards tank division or the second guards motorized rifle regiment, something like that. And they're dying just the same at the front line. So, you know, if that's where they're, if Ru that's where Russia is putting some of their quote unquote most combat-capable forces that they still have, then it's because they recognize the threat. Um, because if they start to lose their supplies, then not only does the push south of Izium get threatened, but then they're going to have to dedicate more forces that would otherwise be pushing south to defend against these Ukrainian guys, and that costs them time. Even if, assuming that Russia has enough forces there to push on down to Sloviansk and Kramatorsk, spoiler alert, they don't, Taking away more forces from that uh, line of attack means it'll take them longer to take these areas, right? And as we've seen, while it's a very bloody time, uh, time is on the Ukrainian side. 
the longer this goes on, the more the Russian troops are degraded, the more the Russian economy is degraded, and lately, the more Western support that Ukraine receives. Unfortunately, they're paying for this time in the blood and uh, you know casualties of not just military personnel, but also civilians and infrastructure damage. But Russia can't afford to keep dragging this out. They've been desperate and hungry for a quick victory since this war began. And when you force them to divide their attention on multiple axes, then it slows them down even more. A long, a long answer, but a very good question. Hopefully I was able to answer it. I guess he might have dropped out. Daryl? Yeah, good evening, Language. Um, I just got a question. Uh, are they still getting uh, uh, people giving, um, you know, uh, POWs in any sort of number, or the Russians actually just backing up, not not bothering with trying to give up? And then uh, I got a second question for Kobe, I guess, is uh, are they, is the Russian economy, do we see any real signs inside of Russia, or is there any uh, news inside from inside Russia where the sanctions and different uh, monetary policies that are going up against them, are they starting to work, work or, and is the economy starting to see it in tangible ways now yet? I can touch the first one, but I'm not an economics guy. We've continued to see Russian troops surrendering. Um, and as far as POW transfers happen, they are still occurring, which is good. Um, the more of those, the better, frankly. Uh, beyond that, we've seen Russian units uh, pulling back because they're too combat damaged. Other Russian units just outright refusing to fight. So th there's no like increased ideological motivation from what I've seen among uh, Russian forces to the point where they'll resist uh, surrender to an nth degree. And then the finance question, I think somebody else can handle better than me. What's the financial question again? Are there, is there any real tangible uh, news coming out where um, the sanctions and other monetary policies, uh, are where the people of Russia are starting to feel it? Uh, is there any news of any of that starting to happen? Well, nothing specific, but the sanctions are working. Yeah, I mean, I know on the... On the uh, on the uh, on the greater scale, we know it's working. I was just wondering, has it gotten down to the man and woman on the street yet? That was all. I'm actually uh, tracking uh, this. I'm expecting a couple of reports to come out uh, with uh, more details on the inflation of uh, prices on the local markets there, like the, the, the prices of uh, foods and supplies and other things. Uh, I'll, I'll update you as soon as I have something solid, Daryl. I'm, I'm like buying this massive workstation that should be here on next Sunday or Monday, and I'll be m more available with more information uh, within the next two, uh, three days. Okay, great. And I think this will be the last question I got. Um, they talk about the, we, we hear about this myth of these different units. And, I, you know, just thinking back in the, you know, the, my history here, a lot of these units have not seen actual combat in, since the Afghan war. I mean, yes, Chechnya and, uh, you know, the police, I'm going to call it police actions and some of these other uh, republics because there's not been a real fight. Uh, a lot of this braggadocio is really from ages ago. And it's just that the it's it's myth more than it is actual combat uh, experience because they don't practice combat so to speak with say like we do with NATO that's so I was just you know just wanted to comment on that whole idea of these best of the best etc type units yeah you're absolutely right I think we should put air quotes around any of these you know best of the best and uh you know, they, they certainly haven't been trained nearly as well as they should be, given what they're going into. And um, beyond that, I mean, they're just not effective. And it seems like they've been totally caught off guard. And I think a lot of people would, like, even if this was a NATO military um, force, I mean, this is modern urban combat, modern, you know, combined arms warfare in the digital age. And we really haven't seen war like this 
in years and years and years and years and years. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of people would be caught off guard, but due to a number of insufficiencies in the Russian system and the way they respond to things and their officer corps and any multitude of factors, they're just very slow to learn these lessons. And so they just keep trying the same thing again and again until either the wall that they're banging their head against breaks or their head breaks open. And we've seen where that gets them. So, yeah, but I think you're absolutely right in that it's been a, it's probably been a Potemkin village for years. You know, the Russian army has been a paper tiger that we were all scared of or, you know, at least concerned about. And now we're looking and we're going, we were worried about you guys for the whole Cold War. What the hell? I mean, I'll give it credit. During the Cold War, we actually, I mean, there was, you know, we both were building up. So back then their equipment was a lot newer, you know, just like we were building up, they were building up. So, you know, that the fear was there because of the numbers. Um, but And we, and for a time, neither one of our armies had done any real fight. I mean, yeah, we came out of Vietnam uh, and they were, and then for them, it was the 80s in Afghanistan, but that was at the end of the Cold Wars rather than in the, you know, in the height of it in the 50s, so to speak. Yeah, if we ever get one of the um, guys who was a former Soviet soldier on here, I think it'd be interesting. But they were mostly in the 80s. So it's, uh, it'd be interesting to see whether, when the change happened, when the degradation happened, or if it's always been like this. But I, I see we have a bunch of other hands up as well. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. NT, please go ahead. Thank you. So uh, I was wondering, have, have there been any further developments uh, whatsoever in uh, Moldova or Transnistria? Not really. Um, so the Russian forces there continue to say, oh, you know, we're moving to a higher state of readiness. We're going to dig in trench positions. we got to get ready for it. But we haven't really seen a ton of offensive movement. Moldova has obviously been concerned. Um, they started some mobilization of their own forces. Beyond that, it's been pretty quiet. Um, and it's important to look at, yes, while there's two Russian battalion tactical groups and a handful of uh, local national supported forces in Transnistria, and Moldova is a very impoverished country with a very uh, weak military, to be respectful. It's still, I mean, I think we've learned a lot about what happens when you assume you can take a country in a couple of days. Um, and there's about 7,500 people total in the Moldovan military, security forces, et cetera. Um, and you have to bet at this point that if Russia decides to take its 1,500 to 2,000, you know, quote unquote combat troops, which have essentially been sitting around arms depots for the past, you know, 20, 30 years and tries to run them into that. Yeah, they'll probably take some ground, but at best, they, at absolute best, they have a rip-roaring success, and they tear through Moldova in a day, and they take all of those towns. They take the whole country. They teleport around. Now you've got an insurgency that NATO is more than happy to fund, right? So it, it doesn't make sense, and I think it's more designed to stoke fears that they might try and do something stupid into Ukraine in combination with, the, you know, an asinine naval invasion, and as a result, keeps the Ukrainian troops in Odessa in that region, as opposed to moving further east to support uh, other Ukrainian forces and blunt Russian offensives. Uh, same thing's happening, was happening in Belarus, where they said, hey, we might do something, so you can't move your troops. You better have 5,000 guys staring across the border at us, because as long as they're staring at us, it means we don't lose any soldiers, and uh, they can't go help anybody else. So that's about where it's at from my estimation, at least recently. We haven't seen any other major provocations. Right. We should, though, keep in mind that there is also the Transnistria military, which is obviously of very questionable value, uh, a real question mark, to be honest. But uh, it's just it's not just the Russian troops. But I'm, I'm glad that there has been no new developments there. And uh, uh, one more comment, if I may. Please. Yeah. So uh, when we're talking about... Uh, Russian performance in in this war, we should uh, uh, keep in mind that uh, uh, Russia never did a wartime mobilization of its units. So when we're seeing uh, these uh, Russian units perform on the battlefield, one one of the reasons why they're performing so badly is that uh, they were never brought up to wartime strength. So when when they have these uh, 
APCs and BTRs and what have you, they, they don't have their full complement of infantry along with them. So it's it's no wonder that they can they can't really hold on to terrain if they're if they're on the receiving end of stiff Ukrainian resistance because they just don't have the manpower within the parent units to uh, really achieve much when they do encounter resistance and that's pretty much all the time so that's that's one thing i wanted to brought up and uh, basically with that i can uh, drop myself down so thank you guys thank you and the riff on that while it's true and it's been very apparent that there these uh, battalion attack groups weren't at 100% capability before the war started they're certainly not at it now even if they were there's a really good thread that i want to pick up um, i'd have to go find it on just how many infantry units are actually in each of these battalion tactical groups, and it's a laughable number. Like, to the point where not just there's a few of them, but even the units they comprise themselves into, they'll end up with, like, three to four guys in, you know, a squad of infantry that would, in another military, have seven to nine. And so when they, their whole thing, the idea is that, oh, well, we'll blow something to hell with artillery, we'll drive into it with our mechanized forces, and these, you know, insurgents we've been fighting in Syria will surrender, and then the infantry will just keep everybody from getting blown up by, uh, you know, RPGs. Maybe that works in certain theories or against a military that you're not fighting, but when you're going toe-to-toe with guys who are, you know, willing to get into knife-fight gun battles with you in the streets, and you start to lose those infantry, well, now who's protecting the tanks? Okay, they got blown up. Okay, well, now who's protecting the artillery? Okay, they got blown up. Okay, now who's protecting the logistics line? Oh, now they got blown up. So there's real deep foundational issues with the battalion tactical group system as it's been implemented, even aside from the fact that corruption and just general lack of force readiness have had on the Russian military. I mean, if you have a bad plan from the get-go or a bad structure, it doesn't make it any better when you start to only have you know 70% of your bad structure. In one extreme case, there was a uh, Russian general or a... Colonel, they got arrested uh, by the FSB in the eastern bef- section before this latest offensive began because he was reporting that his uh, battalion was at 100% capacity. And the FSB did a cleanup operation in the back saying, you know, what the hell happened? Who's been lying to us? And it turned out that, you know, his thing was closer to a 55, 60% capacity, which is an extreme example. I don't think they're all like that at all. But uh, that was what was reported. He got uh, disappeared somewhere back to Russia, and we haven't seen him since. Thank you, Language. Uh... Dominic first. Dominic, please go ahead. Oh, sorry, yeah, Mike was on mute as usual. Um, yeah, just some anecdotal stuff about um, the inflation in Russia. Um, I mean, there's a guy who posts on Cora um, who's pretty good, and he's got kind of various photos of, you know, a block of cheese in like one of those security cages. Um, because it's so valuable and um, yeah general things about you know pensioners what pensioners can afford to eat and how it's very easy to just walk into a restaurant and kind of go through like a pensioner's weekly income um, without even trying really so yeah they 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 are definitely starting to hurt Um, but yeah you know that was the main thing of it but I mean, what I was talking about before is like the whole of Europe has had its pants down during the whole of this conflict, and they still haven't really come round. Not not as not to my um, satisfaction, anyway. I mean, we've got. I mean, I kid you not, Lord Lebedev of Siberia, son of a KGB guy, sitting in the House of Lords, which doesn't make me too happy. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll leave that one alone. But yeah, just to say we've left our really, really caught with our pants down and everybody's having a go at Germany. Um, nowhere near enough pressure is being put on the UK to clean its act up because they're being pretty good in the middle, in, well, very good in the military sense. So yeah, I think that's enough from me. Cheers. All right. Thank you, Dominique. Uh, let's go to all your space first. All your space. All right, Peter. Hello. Um, just to uh, talk about Dominic's point briefly before going on to two further points about uh, the changing culture in Ukraine 
and also a question about um, Ukraine's military uh, capacity. Firstly, I, I agree. I, I don't think Britain's had enough criticism on the fine on, on economics uh, uh, with regard to Russia. Um, I'm living in Germany right now, and I'm from the UK, and I see a lot of criticism directed at Germany, quite quite deservedly. Um, but I think the EU has been quite good on the financial sanctions front, especially since when it takes action, it tends to be more vigorous anyway, because it's larger. Um, okay, and the cultural aspect in Ukraine, just a note on two things. Uh, I have two two people I know in my circle who are from Ukraine. Uh, one of them is from Odessa. His family, fortunately, um, fine. They're in Odessa still. He's in he's in uh, another country. Um, and over the last 10 years, he himself, up until 2014, he didn't really think about Russia too much. He speaks Russian and Ukrainian, but he's he's from a Russian speaking family. Um, and 2014 was really it really changed the way he thought about about Russia. Um, and, you know, until this until this war with things developing in Ukraine, his 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 opinion and his mind started changing on the matter. And he was always opposed to Russia's invasion invasion. But. You know, he he sort of saw his compatriots and thought and became very frustrated and and he has Russian friends and became frustrated with them. Um, yeah, it, it's it's sort of it's been an interesting change for him uh, with people around him. But there's another person in my circle of friends who, until um, until the twenty sixth or twenty seventh of, of of February, was a very ardent supporter of, of Russia and very pro Russian. Her family grew up in a very culturally Russian family and they believed everything about Russia was great and Ukraine was essentially the best friend of Russia and within three days of the war starting all of her everything crashed for her around around her mind and part of the reason why it changed as well was that Zelensky who she believed was very a very pro-Russian president himself seemed to give the impression that he had changed his mind too over the years dealing with with Russia in in the east so that's, that's the interesting aspect I wanted to note so finally the question and then I'll shut up um, I, I I probably an, am an avid consumer of, of Ukrainian propaganda. I'm conscious of it. Um, I recognize that I'm not going to get the full information um, from just hearing pro-Russian sources, uh, pro-Russian, sorry, pro-Ukrainian sources. Um, uh, so I try to, you know, moderate what I hear, but be very enthusiastically supportive of, of, of successes. Um, and I, I have no doubt the morale is very high for the Ukrainians. Um, but I wonder... As, as high as it is and how eager they are to, to get a victory here. And as, as, as putrid as the, the state of the Russian army is, the longer it, the, surely the longer that it holds itself in the eastern regions as it stands right now, and the, the, the more it hollows the area out um, with, with, uh, with terrorizing it or, or propagandic, propagandistic purposes, you know, in mind. Um, are the Russians perhaps, they're, they're sort of entrenching themselves in the area, are they not? And it doesn't matter how much... I mean, there's a point where that sort of, I mean, I'm not going to say force multiplier here, but when they entrench themselves in the East, surely they're putting themselves in a very stubborn position that makes it very hard to dislodge them. And I understand they're having their their logistics attacked, but um, they're, they're, how much, I mean, as, as as willing as the Ukrainians are, how much energy would they need to push them out of the areas they've just recently occupied? Uh, that's it. That's That's all I need to ask. Thank you. Yeah, so it's difficult to quantify how much energy. Um, if I'm hearing you correctly, a big part of the question is, is there enough Ukrainian willpower at this point? Yes, likely. Is there enough Ukrainian willpower in two months after the Russians have turned this into a grinding, brutal, you know, offensive? And if it was a different kind of war, I might agree with you a little more. But at this point, Russia's kind of backed themselves into a corner because Ukrainians know what the alternative is. They know that li- what living under a Russian occupation looks like, and it generally doesn't involve staying living for long. And as a result, this has become a war, an existential war. And when you have an existential war where your financial needs are being taken care of by the economic powers of the West and what have you, then really the only constant is uh, willpower. And so Ukraine has been incredibly good with its messaging, both domestic and internationally, and barring some kind of major loss, which I don't really see could happen at this point. I mean, look, you know, if and when Mariupol falls, that's going to become a rallying cry. You know, so Russia's kind of backed themselves into a corner on this one. They don't 
have the uh, propaganda information war, that they're losing that by a country mile. And so even if this turns into a grinding war, there's some reasons to suggest that with the advent of more uh, Western military systems, that uh, Russian entrenched positions would not prove to be quite as entrenched as they think they are, especially if they're attacking the supply lines and starving them out. Uh, I, I think the Ukrainian military would currently have the uh, the willpower and the capability to push through. Will it be nearly as quick as we've seen um, north of Kiev? Absolutely not. Um, but uh, you know, if you start to see what, what I suspect would happen, would look something like this. There's the it, the Izium offensive gets blunted and or destroyed. Uh, the area to the northeast of Kharkiv, to the east of Kharkiv, is pushed against to the point where the forces in that region can menace Russian supply routes, and that alleviates some of the downstream pressure on Ukraine positions. Once that happens, I don't see the Russian Ukraine saying, "Okay, well, let's you know just put all of our F eggs in the one basket there and fight all the way to the border with Russia." They'll probably spend some time down in Kherson and towards the south of Zaporizhia, attempting to reclaim a previously lost territory. And only at that point, once, you know, some kind of line of defense has been drawn up against further Russian incursions from Crimea or what have you, then you'll start to see large professionally uh, done combined arms operations. And I don't think Russia can stand against those currently. Um, we've seen that they can barely stand against what exists now. I don't see a combined arms operation, you know, getting blunted by a bunch of Russians sitting in trenches with, you know, old material, poor equipment, terrible morale, and damaged supply lines. Especially uh, if this turns into an artillery war, at which point, given some of the supplies that have already been sent and others that are being discussed, Ukraine would hold an advantage in a number of ways. Thank you, language. I'm curious. Uh, mic check? Loud and clear. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on, uh, well, the fact that on the one hand, uh, in any kind of counteroffensive, like it's, it's, it's a false analogy to compare like the offensive the Russians did to any sort of potential offensive the Ukrainians might do because the Ukrainians have had the privilege of having uh, eight years to prepare, you know, fixed concrete positions from which to defend themselves with. And given this past week, we've been getting quite a few reports now that Russian special forces and uh, the Pathfinder detachments of their units, you know, these are the best trained, best equipped, best motivated guys are refusing to go out and fight and, and you know, literally find the way for, for their units to get to their, you know, attack positions or sort of move move the line forward, right, without, you know, getting ambushed by a hundred angry TDF guys with, with RPGs. And and when that's the case, it's it, it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, the actual conscripts sitting around and 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 sticking with it when all they've got is, you know, a little a a little dirt hole in the ground and US supplied one fifty fives are raining on them nonstop for like three days like sort of when you when you flip at that when you sort of flip around the logistics and and the sort of preparation time and think about what the russians actually have to go with on a defensive e even though they have all this land they don't have the men to defend it they don't have the preparation they don't have the logistics to hold it it's just like it'll fall over basically all right thank you last call all your space are you with us all right, Hermageddon. Hey, um, a quick procedural question. Uh, did you see my hand up uh, for a while, or was it not visible to you? It was visible, sir, but I was trying to... Uh, I know which uh, speakers would add to which topics, so I was trying to keep the continuity of the topics being discussed, not, not ignoring you on purpose or anything. Apologies. Uh, yeah, uh, well, I, I raised my hand back and uh, when the topic was about the... Uh, also uh, autocratic societies that we discussed about 40 minutes ago. I, I'm not your sure. Hand, you... Your hand was visible for the last 10 minutes. Oh, okay. no, I raised my hand 40 minutes ago. I'm just trying to figure out uh, how this space works. Okay. Um, it, is it okay if I can circle back to that topic of um, authoritarianism? Or is it not? Okay. Um, 
Yeah, okay, that's not really specific in Ukrainian topic, but um, I believe it is kind of like the root cause of this entire invasion, war, genocide that's going on, is that Russia is a firmly authoritarian, totalitarian society. And um, also, like Jingu um, was pointing out back then, like China is too. So I, I'm from Germany. I'm, I'm born and raised in Germany. I have my ancestry is all over Eastern Europe. So I'm kind of quite familiar with the impact that authoritarian societies and totalitarian regimes can have on people. And what I was seeing in the last 10, 15 years is actually that we're becoming more and more vulnerable to authoritarianism by the means of export of Russian ex authoritarianism ideology export to our own societies. I mean, being from Germany, it's I'm aware that we are just one messed up election away of failing in our own democracy. I mean, somebody once said um, democracy in itself carries the seed for its own destruction. And that is when the, the people just choose not to have that anymore. On the other hand, you cannot move back from authoritarianism as easily to democracy by the same means because you have to fight for that. You have to remove that by force. And Germany wasn't strong enough to do that itself. It has to be done externally. Um, in Russia, there's no attempt. In China, there's no attempt to remove that uh, autocratic regimes from the inside. And there's no way you can do it from the outside, too. So that's there's no open-ended questions. What is really important to me, there's the two questions that came up today. Uh, one during the day, I believe, when I was listening to the space, and one a little bit later, about an hour ago, is we need to cherish more how strong democracy really is, what it really gives to us, what how important it's really for our day-to-day -day life that we are in a free democratic society. And the other one is, what can we do to combat authoritarian societies or uh, authoritarian systems? And that is, we need to work here a little bit on ourselves. How do we prevent that to creep into the West? So during that war that's happening right now, there was one major election in one major Western country. It was France. And everybody was looking at what happens if Le Pen wins. But how is it going to change the fabric of the Western support of Ukraine if just one puzzle piece falls off? Okay, And we, we had other occasions before when Russia was trying to influence elections to have people of their own making, of their own interest, ruling a democratic country and turning it more and more autocratic as opposed to free, loving, democratic countries. So I think that is the anger that's really necessary to fight on, to put on more checks and balances, to put in more awareness, to protect their own societies against this backstabbing attack that creeps into ourselves and removes our ability to defend other people who are under physical military attack from autocratic uh, regimes. So that, that was the comment I wanted to make. Thank you, uh, Armageddon. Well, we're getting some time for the question. Oops, there we go. Ben, please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, I have a question for M. But I assume you're just going to say that you have a non-disclosing agreement that doesn't allow you to answer. Um, the question is the following. I heard from uh, Javier Blas from the Financial Times on a recent podcast that Europe was increasingly stepping away from Russian, uh, from Russian energy, but actually going towards something which he calls blends. So something along the lines of, well, we don't buy Russian oil, we buy oil from Kazakhstan, which is actually 80% Russian, but 
at least it doesn't have the Russian tag. So I was wondering if, if it was true, if it was still, uh, if it was still um, ongoing, and if the, um, the, the numbers that have been uh, floated by the Germans recently of uh, on, having moved from 35% Russian oil to 20% or something along those lines, where so that's this, that decrease was actually tied to this sort of um, uh, accounting shenanigans. And maybe you have an answer for that. Thanks. So there is an international framework for natural gas and oil going through pipeline networks. While I don't have the specific details, but my understanding is once your oil goes through a certain pipeline network operated by a different country, it becomes oil or gas supplied by that country, not yours. And this is done in a very complex framework of uh, international business uh, deals and contracts. So without knowing exactly where is the start point of uh, the oil you've just referenced and how it's being transported into Kazakhstan and how it's being sold out of the Kazakhstan network, I wouldn't be able to give you a specific answer. But a more generic answer would be that given the complex sanctions regime, there will also be more complex ways to try and bypass it. And usually that gets detected by countries enforcing those sanctions and they respond accordingly by highlighting uh, other points of exit for Russian gas into the market. Uh, I will look into it and just send me a DM, please, uh, with any links or any articles that you've seen on that, and I'll get back to you specifically after reviewing everything I know about it. Will do. Equisitarium, please go ahead. Alejandro, please go ahead. Alejandro, you requested the mic. Please unmute yourself and go ahead. Alejandro, you requested the mic. Please unmute yourself and go ahead. Excuse me, sir. When do you think this can end? Say that again, Alejandro. When do you think this can end? No one is quite sure when it will end. Uh, there's no time framework for that. Uh, Any I other questions, most... Alejandro? All right, Hopkins, please go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? I'm from China. No, I'm a, a scholar uh, in a university. Uh, I have um, been here for uh, uh, several hours, and I heard about uh, something about the Chinese or uh, uh, and China. Uh, I think um, Xi Jinping, just like Putin, it's uh, from another system of politics. Uh, when we talk about uh, Trump, when we talk about uh, Biden, we know what we uh, what they want. Uh, this uh, I, I wish uh, we can say. Oh, this guy uh, he wanted this, wanted that. But uh, when we talk about Putin, uh, we didn't know um, who uh, uh, is this guy, uh, what he want, or uh, what the. Um, personality uh, he is so mystery but what we can see uh, when we talk about Putin what we can see about him I, I see we can something it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, there's something we can talk that he want to keep his position uh, he he uh, uh, want to protect his power? He, uh, that's the um, uh, yes. That's that's uh, that's true. Uh, and now he uh, attacked the Ukraine and uh, didn't talk about the others. Even uh, talk about uh, talk to his uh, friends. Uh, why? Uh, that's uh, the mystery uh, personality. Uh, uh, so I want uh, mm, uh, uh, there's a leader of American, there's a leader of uh, uh, Euro um, uh, country. Uh, they want to talk, uh, uh, negotiate ways 
uh, China, uh, the leader of China, uh, just like they want to uh, negotiate with Putin. That's difficult because they have two systems uh, can't know each other. Uh, so I think uh, the war is uh, difficult. Uh, 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 this, uh, Ukraine will win the war, but they must spend much more time. Uh, uh, okay, that's my opinion. Thank you. Thank you, Hopkins. Remagadian? Uh, yeah, a response to Hopkins. Uh, so actually we knew what um, Putin wants because he said it himself. Uh, he stated that the uh, fall of the Soviet Union was the uh, single most tragedy of the 20th century. So he, he didn't pick World War II or um, the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, he picked the fall of the Soviet Union as the most tragic event of the 20th century, and he vowed to restore the Soviet Union, at least not, not in, in the system like in the communist system, but uh, in, in the power structure, in the, um, the imperialist ident- identity of the Soviet Union. That's what he wanted to restore. Follow me, guys. Follow and, me. Um, Follow me, guys. Pardon me? And uh, from China, we, we didn't see that. I mean, China wants Taiwan, but uh, I think they're pretty happy just to wait it out for 20, 30, 40, 50 more years uh, until they are economically outwafted and uh, would like to join by themselves back to the country. They wouldn't necessarily need to use the military option for that. Um, th- th- that's not really... Uh, I mean, that the both options are actually on the table, I guess, but the Chinese are willing to play the long game. Um, Putin is really pressing for the advancement of his restoration of the Soviet Union type of empire that he has in his mind. And he stated that out in the open in several speeches for uh, uh, at least 15 years. All right. Thank you, Harmageddon. So a quick update from the Donbass region. Uh, Ukrainian military put out their update said uh, that there was 11 Russian attacks that were repelled, eight tanks were destroyed, 11 APCs or other armored vehicles, and five uh, just trucks, uh, seven Russian UAVs were shot down, and then there was that 40, you know, plus units that swept down to try and cut off the area between Severodonetsk and Rubizne at a town that is a really terrible name to pronounce, Vodjevodivka. That assault was unsuccessful. Um, Beyond that, uh, looks we have a updated count of Russian officers killed in the war. Um, they had a pretty rough day overall. Overall, they lost another uh, 15 officers in the past week. They've lost another 30. The current total uh, confirmed Russian officers, and this includes everything from you know what we would call a second lieutenant here in America, all the way up to uh, two lieutenant generals or a two-star. Um, 462 to 477 officers have been killed since Russia started its invasion of Ukraine. That is a huge amount. Um, in short, about 95 uh, you know, new lieutenants, about 150, what we would call first lieutenants, about 100, or sorry, second lieutenants, what we would call uh, regular lieutenants. So, you know, the next step up, 140 of those, over 100 captains of the Army, not Navy, uh, over 65 majors, over 34 lieutenant colonels, and over 16 colonels, and then seven uh, to eight generals and two lieutenant generals. So when you lose 462 officers, yes, a lot of them are junior officers, but you do have a brain drain that is very difficult to replace. And that's another factor that we should consider in this war. It's not just the guys running around with the guns on the ground, but the commanders leading them. And they're being killed at a massive pace. I mean, let's do a little math here. If it's 460 some odd, and then you divide that by, uh, what, 71? If I can get my keyboard to work well. 41 divided by 71. That means you are losing somewhere on the order of, I'm not working today. You're losing a lot of people. Um, You're losing about six and a half officers a day. And that is a large, large number, and I think that has more of an outsized effect than the several hundreds of uh, conscripts and regular infantry 
uh, that die every day as well, especially these senior officers. Losing 65 majors is bonkers. Um, you know, losing, you know, more than more than one colonel is bizarre. It shows that they're getting placed closer and closer to the front lines because they their communications are so garbage that they have to be close to the front lines to actually affect change. And as a result, they get targeted and killed. Do we know why their communications are garbage? I think they've always been garbage. I listen to them um, occasionally. And they, like, even setting aside old equipment and whatnot. Dominic, please go ahead. Dominic, you have your hand up. Please go ahead. Ah, yeah, sorry. Uh, Mike, on mute again. Yeah, just a slightly tangential thing to the officer numbers, which are absolutely bonkers. Um, everybody on here talks about, you know, the, the non-commissioned officers being the the kind of heart and soul of, of an army. Um, and they don't really have that. The Russians don't really have a, an NCO corps as such. Um, and it kind of, to me, it kind of makes sense because the minute you've got a whole load of guys running around at, you know, sergeant level and you can say, go behind the lines, you know, interdict these supplies and you can basically leave them to it. That really doesn't work for them because that means they've got a, a danger. It's a real danger then, isn't it, to the FSB? Um, you know, cause they, cause, because they can work independently and they can, you know, screw stuff up whenever and wherever they want. So I'm just wondering what anybody's, has anybody ever really, I mean, obviously people have thought about this stuff, but are people really shocked by, you know, by the, by the fact that we're getting so many officers' deaths because, because they, there, there is no proper NCO corps. It's a little, that's very true. It's just a little more nuanced in that um, the Russian officer corps has gently put a superiority complex um, to the point that, you know, even a lot of post-Soviet militaries, it was the case in Ukraine until after they modernized, uh, the officers kind of lorded over everyone else and they feel like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm superior and thus I do not need to listen to you. You see this in other uh, post-Soviet and post-Soviet trained militaries um, where the officers like, well, you know, this is the lap of luxury or I'm a political appointee or whatever, and you all need to lick my boots. And that can translate very dangerously into some guy fresh out of college smacking around a 20-year-old or a 20-year combat veteran because, well, I'm the officer, I'm in charge, you need to listen to me and do what I say. Otherwise, I'll, you know, I'll lord my power over you and I'll show people that I'm in charge. It's a very toxic system. And when you get that, then it's uh, just one guy trying to, you know, demonstrate his capabilities. Then everybody else goes, well, then why should I even try? You know, the, we don't get told what's going on. We've seen that time and time again from leaked Russian plans or, uh, you know, stolen Russian plans after their uh, Russian troops were killed. And their plans are garbage at least the ones that are issuing to individual units. It's like before a mission in the U.S. military, we take time and we figure out, like, what's the plan? Because that way, if, you know, a bunch of officers and, you know, NCOs get shot, at least there's a general semblance of order. Russia doesn't deal with that. Beyond maybe some of their senior um, enlisted, and there's not a ton of them, uh, or, you know, some junior officers, nobody really knows what's going on. They just get told, we're taking this town today. That's the fight. Let's go for it. And then, you know, the officer will come up with a plan. And that's a terrible, terrible, terrible way to try these things. Um, there was one, and this, this is, I think, a kind of an extreme example. It looked like it was more of a recon unit where they got captured and killed way behind the lines of moving towards Odessa in like the first couple of weeks of the war, right? And their plans were found. And it was like something from South Park where it was 